Three or four years ago, while Carolyn was here over Mother's Day, I attended church in Colorado Springs, uh, where we go, uh, one of the churches we go to, and uh, we go to actually two churches every Sunday. And uh, it was the second church, and I went in and sat down, and this preacher normally does an excellent job of preaching. He did on this Sunday as well, but when he opened the the uh, service, or his preaching, and he said, I'm, we're going to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. And I thought to myself, uh, he's going to preach on that passage? You've got to be kidding. <laughs> I was just shocked. Now, this is the passage in which Paul tells women how he expects them to dress and act when they come to church. He wants them to learn in silence with all submission, and he does not permit them to teach or to exercise authority over man. I'm sitting here thinking, this is a Mother's Day message. Okay, whatever. Well, he did cover the difficult portion of that scripture. But then he ended his message in a very brief but interesting way that really caught my attention. And it really helped that message to get across. And... It set me off on a journey of really digging into a portion of Scripture over the last three years. And every time I read this passage or hear it, I begin to think about it. Because it's a problem passage. Now, most of you remember that uh, I preached on the passage of 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, about probably 1990-something. And uh, it went over like a lead balloon. But on the other hand, um, that was a uh, portion of scripture that I felt needed to be shared, but I didn't share it on Mother's Day. On the other hand, the first verses 9 to 14, I spent a lot of time on, but then I glossed over verse 15. So this morning, what I'd like to do is to gloss over, briefly read, verses 9 to 14, and then spend some time developing with you Verse 15, which I think is a beautiful portion of Scripture that should encourage mothers and women on this very special day. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. 1 Timothy, chapter 2, verses 9 to 15. Paul's given some instructions to the church about prayer and then specifically to men. And now he wants to speak to women. In verse 9, he says, In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for a woman professing godliness with good works. Verse 11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and with self-control. Now, let me just point out a couple things here about this. Verse 15 needs to be connected to the context of verses 9 to 14. Verse 9, 
in verse in the middle of the verse, it talks about with propriety and moderation. The word moderation there is a word that is means basically good judgment. The word occurs again in verse 15. And it talks it's the very last word in that verse. There it's translated self-control, but it's the same word in the language of the New Testament. The second thing I want to emphasize is that when he began to speak to women, he spoke to them in the plural. But when he got to the women, uh, a woman learning in silence, he spoke in the singular. In verse 15, he begins speaking to a woman in the singular, she. But then he moves at the last part of the verse to the plural. Now, this will become important as we try to unravel or, as they say today, unpack this passage and its meaning. So what we want to look at now is this is a a, a framework, a package beginning with good judgment, ends with good judgment. It begins with women in general, moves to specific women and then moves back to women in general. So let's take a look at this wonderful passage. The first word that occurs in verse 15 is the word, not nevertheless, that's what we need to put in there for in the English because word order is important to us. And it was important in the Greek language as well. But the first word in the Greek language is the word saved or salvation. And that's for emphasis. That's for emphasis. It's the word so and it's translated she shall be saved. Singular. Future tense. What's he talking about here? And then he adds the word in the language of the, the New Testament, nevertheless. A mild contrast. Nevertheless, she shall be saved. But the emphasis on the fact that she shall be saved in a contrast. Contrasting to what? What he had just said about a woman learning in silence, not usurping authority over a man or teaching. In other words, there seems to be something here he's building to. He sort of left women up to verse 14 with this idea. Here you have a godly woman and she wants to contribute to the church. She wants to speak the word of God. She wants to be involved in training and equipping and involved in ministry in the church. And Paul's saying, wait a second, in the church service, would you back off? You're just as capable as a man. That's not the issue. But would you back off out of respect for God and his created order? He created man first. Paul emphasizes that. And it was the woman that fell into deception first. But nevertheless, in a church service, just back off. And so then the woman who really wants to live a life that counts for God, says, well, what do I do now? Where can I contribute? Paul says, nevertheless, she shall be saved. What's he talking about here? What's he driving at? The word saved, as most of you know, is a word that is a word that needs to be defined by the context. We use words all the time. Like if I say I'm fulfilled. You would ask, well, in what sense is he saying that? If I just got up from a good meal and I said I'm fulfilled, you'd understand I meant physically I've been filled up with food. 
Or if I go out for a bicycle ride down the coast, as I did on Friday, and I see the beautiful ocean, and I came back, and they said, how was the ride? I said, it was so fulfilling. They would understand what I meant by that. But it needed a context. The word saved is a word throughout the New Testament that always needs a context. Sometimes it can refer to the gift of eternal life. At other times, it can refer to being saved from physical death. But in some exceptional cases, I think this is one of them, it refers to something a little different. And what I'd like to do is to walk you through some passages that I've been looking at in the, in the rest of the New Testament that sort of help lay a foundation for what I'm about to say about this word in verse 15. For instance, in the three Gospels, Jesus taught that, he uses this phrase, Whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake and the Gospels will save his life. What's that mean? The point if, the point he seems to be making is clearly if we are constantly focused on fulfilling our desires and pleasing ourselves, we will never find Salvation in the sense of fulfillment and significance in this life or in the life to come. We may have eternal life. We may spend eternity in heaven. But the full fulfillment in this life that we want so desperately and the sense of fulfillment that we look forward to in the life to come is contingent upon our investing this life in an effort to please our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, if we're focused on fulfilling our Lord's desires and sharing his gospel with others, we will find fulfillment in this life and the life to come. Matthew 19, verse 10, Jesus said, He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. To be lost means to be ambling about with no purpose or direction in life because a lost person does not know the living God. But then Jesus does not simply seeking people to take them to heaven one day. But people who need to be saved in the sense of living a life to the fullest in this day and in the day to come. It's interesting that the words here in, in uh, Luke 19, which is where this passage is, Matthew 19, where this passage is found, is followed by the parable of the minus. Luke 19, I'm sorry is followed by the parable of the minas, which represent one life that we've all been given to live. How will we live it? Jesus came to hope, show us how we can live it to the fullest. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16, he said, Take heed to yourself and to the teaching of the word. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save yourself and those who hear you. What do you you mean, save yourself? He's already saved. He's born again. He's gone to heaven. So are the people that he's ministering to. But the one thing that Paul is emphasizing here is, as we minister the word, there's a salvation that comes to the people who hear it and to us. Save here has the idea to do well in life and to have an effective ministry in the case of Timothy. If we want our congregation to do well in life, to be saved, we need to preach the word. If we want 
to have an effective ministry. We need to take heed to ourselves that, that we're living a life of integrity and faithfulness before God. You see, the, the word saved here has the idea of being fulfilled, of doing well. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. We're told that our Lord has an unchanging priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, that is, completely and entirely, those who come to God through him because he constantly intercedes for us so that we can live well for him. It's not like we're standing here with our hands gripping heaven saying, I'm trying to get in, Lord, give me that last little boost and I'll make it. I know I'm going to heaven. You know you're going to heaven because Jesus died for our sins. He's given us everlasting life. We are going there regardless. But Jesus came not only that we might enter into heaven, but that we might live life to the fullest here. That we might experience his salvation life now in this life. Unencumbered by our past sins and lingering failures which he, as our high priest, has done away with. James writes that we need to receive the implanted word which is able to save your life, our lives. Obviously, to save our lives from physical death, but ultimately, a life of, of insignificance. When we receive the word of God into our life and it begins to take root in our life, it gives us new direction. It enables us to experience this life in the fullest sense that God intended for us to experience it. To become all that God wants us to become, just as we pray for our children. We want them to become all God wants them to be. Because it's only then that they're going to be saved in the sense that they're experiencing life to the fullest. Now, I know some of this is old stuff for some of you. We've been down this road before. But it's important to understand that the salvation Paul is emphasizing here, as he writes to women, to a woman, I should say, a woman who wants to make a difference is a salvation from a life of insignificance to a life of significance. From a life of trying to find fulfillment in striving for ourselves to a life of fulfillment in striving to please our God and those we seek to serve in our life, in particular our children. From a life of frustration, seeking significance. I want to feel significance. I want to feel my life counts. To a life where we are actually experiencing significance and meaning and purpose and value. A life well lived. A life of experiencing the uttermost of what our Lord wants us, to, every man and every woman, to experience who believes in him. Therefore, I would translate, in my mind, verse 15 this way to start with. Nevertheless, she will find fulfillment, peace, and profound joy through child becoming. He said, that's not what it says. It says childbearing. Next, we want to look at the word technagonias, which is the word child and the word gonias, which has the idea of either to be, bring into existence, 
or an equal number of passages it can mean to become, in the sense of becoming something we were meant to be, of becoming someone in a certain state. And that's what I think Paul is driving at here. I would strongly suggest that Paul had both of these things in mind. Certainly there is joy in bringing new life into the world. But any mother, and you could add father in there, brings that life into the world with a firm hope that this little boy or this little girl will grow to maturity. What parent would hold a baby in their arms and say, I hope you never grow up? None of us. We look at that little baby who can barely stand, barely be held in your arms without falling all over the place. And you're cradling its head and you're holding it firmly. But you're thinking one day, this is going to be a man or a woman. And as a believer, you're thinking, I want them to be a man of God. I want her to be a woman of God. And that's what you set your heart on. And I think that's what Paul had in mind. Not only would she experience joy in delivering this baby and then run away, no. But then she will have supreme joy and a sense of fulfillment as she shapes the life of this little baby into the life God meant it to be. The wife, the mother, is the major player in bringing that child to maturity. We all know that. As men, we do our best to contribute, but most men are busy trying to earn a living. They're trying to get out and, in a traditional sense, do the things that men do. But on the other hand, it's the wife, the mother that's left there with the kids, and she's shaping that precious life to be something, we hope, to become mature in Christ. Any mother... It brings a life into this world, has a firm hope that little boy or girl will grow up one day to maturity and ultimately, if she's a Christian and a devoted Christian, a Christian who wants to make a difference, she can bring that child up to become a mature believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Well, Paul asked the woman who wants to make a difference to dress using good judgment and to remain silent in church out of respect for God's created order. Nevertheless, she will find fulfillment and great significance, peace and profound joy in bringing children into this world and in bringing them to maturity in Christ. And that's the point that I think Paul was making when he said, you will be experiencing profound fulfillment in bringing up children in the Lord. Bringing them into the world, but then bringing them forth in the Lord. You mothers may not realize just how much influence you have in this world. This is where we men have our time, and I'll tell you why. There's three women in my life that have made a huge difference in my life. First is my mother. Right now, my mother, she's almost on the border where she doesn't 
recognize us as her children. And we're praying God will release her from her 90-year-old body, which is just really hurting. But on the other hand, in his time, my mom impacted me greatly. She taught me that I had value in life. She taught me I could make a difference. Then I married this lovely woman, Carolyn, who has had an enormous impact on me. As you know, she tempers the harsh side of Arch. And if it wasn't for her, I probably could never have been a pastor because I had a lot to learn about caring about people. But then God gave me a lovely daughter. And when she called up, she says, I want to run a water. I said, what? You got so much on your plate, how are you going to do that? But she was just showing me how, how she had developed so many wonderful qualities and wanted to make, make a difference. And she found an avenue through which she could make a difference in not only shaping the lives of her own kids, but shaping the lives of other, other children that would be entrusted to a ministry she could work with. Now you wonder, why do we men, if I ask Renee to get up here and tell you about his family, or Jack, or Steve, or whoever, you would get up here and you'd cry too. And you know why? Because we recognize how important the women are life has been. And that's why it's hard for us. I can preach all day without crying. But you get me to talking about my mom or my, my wife, I fall apart. And I know you guys do too. And that's a strong man speaking. I'm no or wussy or whatever you call it. I think we realize in large measure what a godly woman has made a difference in our life. Think about this. Think about our Lord Jesus Christ. Here he is hanging on the cross. He's got just a few seconds before he's going to say it is finished. And he's going to give up his ghost, as the Bible says. Unbelievable suffering and pain. I can't conceive of the kind of suffering that he experienced. But what did he say? When Jesus, therefore, it says in John 19, when Jesus, therefore, saw his mother and this disciple, John, whom he loved, standing by, Jesus said to his mother, woman, and that was not like we use the word woman sometimes in a derogatory way. That was a tender way. Mother. Woman, behold your son. Looking at John. And then he said to John, his disciple, his beloved disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his home. Jesus cared about his mother. And he took care of her, even in death. I'm sure that his death on that cross was like a knife going through her heart. 
his life on earth and his resurrection to come. And the hope of the resurrection that she would one day be raised as well brought fulfillment and peace and joy beyond measure. For Mary was a woman who made a difference. Not by speaking in church, but by changing the world through raising her son to maturity. You know, Jesus went through all the processes we do of growing up. Just a little, a little boy. And he needed a mother. And she brought him up. Then all of a sudden she found out when he was 12 years old that he said, I need to be about my father's business. And she released him. And he went on to change the world. A woman, because she was taken from man, and what distinguishes a man from the rest of creation. And for that reason, because in a sense, woman is part of man. And so women can do whatever men do. We've seen that in our culture. They can cultivate the ground. In the case of Deborah, she led a military campaign. We have women in our military. Women can lead a Fortune 500 company. They can drive a race car. They can do all kinds of things that men do. But as a woman, the last and most important, attractive, beautiful creature that God created. You realize she was the last thing that God created in this world. And most of us men say, wow, that's great, Lord. She can bring a man into this world and raise that son or daughter to become a mature follower of Christ. Men, we can't do that. We can't do that like she can. And in this, she finds her unique fulfillment, her salvation, her significance. To be able to say it's well with her life, with her soul. However, this salvation, this fulfillment, this significance, this sense of well-being and joy and peace is contingent upon, and now he moves to women in plural. He's moved away from the woman who wants to make a difference, who was told not to speak in church. And now he's talking about women in general, just as he began. When he talked about women, they need to dress appropriately with good judgment. And so now he says to women in general, he says you need to continue or remain, abide, if you will. In faith, they need to trust in the Lord. In love, they need to seek what is best for the object of her love. Whether it be her Lord, her husband, her children, even when they disappoint her. You see the women that go down there to the prison to visit a son. They never give up. They love that child. And even though that child has committed a horrendous crime, mom comes and visits. Holiness 
A willingness to live separate or to separate herself and her family apart from the values and the practices of this world which are contrary to the will of God. There's no value in that. But then he adds one caveat. Beyond faith, love, and holiness. With good judgment. With good judgment. The very emphasis he put on the very first verse that we looked at in this picture. Thoughtful is sometimes used to the word self-control, prudence. But I like the word good judgment. A woman with good judgment. She is concerned, as one commentator put it, with the what, the how, and the when of doing what should be done. And I thought to myself, you know why women nag us? It's because they want to know what should be done, how it should be done, and when it should be done. And we don't always want to think about those things. But a woman does. Because she's raising a family. How are moms doing today? I imagine a lot of men would give their wives and their mothers great high marks as I have. I'm not the only one in here with a great mother, great wife, and great daughter. I know as I watch Amy with her work in Awana, how encouraged I am. I know as I see my, my, my wife come to me and say, I'm praying for so-and-so. Somebody that's somewhat obscure in our relation, in our, in our work, our ministry, but she notices the, the wallflower and she cares about that person. I'm encouraged. It reminds me that I need to care about those people. Yesterday there was an article in the USA Today. I guess it was on Friday for the U.S. The weekend edition. And uh, they shared some statistics, which I think most of us as pastors have known for years. It said, hold the chocolate and the flowers. What mom may really want for Mother's Day is for the whole gang to go to church. A survey of 1,000 Protestant pastors finds Mother's Day ranks right after Easter and Christmas in peak church attendance. Father's Day, the poll says it's at the bottom in attendance. Though both holidays began as church-sponsored events a century ago. It seems that on Mother's Day, moms say, let's all go to church. But on Father's Day, Dad says, I'm going to play golf. At men, sometimes we're inherently selfish, as we know. But we thank God for those women. Not all women, but those women who choose To put their families and their Lord before themselves. And who realize what should be done, how it should be done, and when it should be done. And who move us, sometimes immovable mountains that we are, to do what we need to do. And so women, I want to thank you for being so faithful in this church, as a part of this church family. Again, I want to thank my lovely wife and my daughter. For their love and support. And again, I just uh, 
thank my Lord, who himself has created family for a purpose. And that we find our true salvation, our fulfillment in this life, in our relationship to our God as a father. I love it when I hear people pray, our father. It points to me, it points out to me how much depth there is in their life and in their walk with God. Because they've understood that's a privilege. The world can call God, God. But we can call him our father. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for your love for us and for this wonderful day. I pray you'd encourage us today as we go forth. May we be all that you want us to be. Thank you for our godly women, our mothers and wives, daughters, who've made such a difference in our life. And we pray your blessing upon them. In Jesus' name, amen.